Hi, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. This is Helen Hillix. I am your co-host today. Uh, Chris Reese is supposed to be your host, but is having technical difficulties, so it's going to start out with me. And we welcome you, and we thank you for your patience. Today's show is Cooperative Businesses Are Not Socialist Propaganda. They are American. Join our guest, Estevan Kelly, Executive Director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, to, te- to hear all about it. The inner revolution supports an evolution in our economy to move away from the disproportionate distribution of wealth toward an economy and society where individuals' needs are met. How can we do this? Estevan Kelly has some answers. As an important leader and creative force in a solidarity economy and co-op movements, Estevan will share the reality of what it takes for the economic model to transform. Let's challenge ourselves to move beyond our ego's view of life where only my needs matter and be inspired by the cooperative movement. With oneness, accountability, and mutual support, we can co-create a different world. So, as, as it says in that introduction, uh, Estevan is the executive director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives and an important leader and creative force in solidarity economy and co-op movements. So let's start out with you telling us a little bit about, is it Aorta that, that Chris mentioned? Well, yes. So I am. It's it's kind of that joke uh, about being both a member and in the leadership of of a of an organization. So um, I'm a co-founder of a worker cooperative, which is called Aorta, and I can tell you about that in just a second. Um, oh, okay. And that co-op is a member of the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, of which I recently have become the executive director. Oh, um, I so love we that. Are yeah. So we, well, I love uh, the fact. I love the fact that you are both a worker. I mean, this this is the thing I love about this is that you know you have a cooperative, so you are one of the workers of a cooperative, and you know it really breaks down the hierarchy already. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's already a different playing field because you are one of the people that's doing the cooperative and you also are the executive director of the federation. So I just wanted to throw that in to start with. I, I really like that. And it, it already evens out the playing field and feels much more cooperative. So go ahead and tell us about it. Well, exactly. I mean, and that's part of um, uh, probably <laughs> where when we evolve much later in the conversation, I can talk a little bit about the importance of having a fractal awareness and how we approach our organizing. But that idea that the experience um, and my relationships at the smaller level of my worker cooperative um, is kind of replicated and expanded at that higher level of being involved in the National Federation of Worker Co-ops. Um, so that's intentional and it's on purpose and it's it's deliberate and, and effective. Um, and it allows me to do my job, which really is uh, about coordinating and organizing the voice for um, kind of an alternative form of organized labor, which is um, through cooperatives, worker co-ops, um, and talking about the importance of workplace democracy and advocating for um, a more favorable um, legislative and also business and community climate um, so that these kinds of businesses can thrive because they're ones that are rooted and accountable to the community. Um, they're, they're embedded in those relationships, both financially and socially, 
um, and also politically when it comes to that. Um, and they're regenerative, regenerative and sustainable, and as you were starting to say, uh, accountable. So we organize for um, for advocacy and, and policy. We do um, benefits for our members directly, the way that most um, unions or um, even if if it's an association of freelancers, you know that that part of the the benefit of associating is that by coming together, um, you can you can establish um, benefits for the workers themselves. Um, and then we do a fair a lot of communications work and awareness building. And um, and where we serve as liaisons to people who are doing cooperative development or community economic development, um, and of course our partners both nationally in the employee ownership world or other cooperatives that are you know maybe more oriented for consumers, um, and then internationally we interface with a, a whole global network of worker cooperatives in Europe, in Latin America, in Canada. Um, in England, and of course, in the, the where the the headquarters is of the International Worker Co-op Federation wow. in Brussels. <laughs> wow! I mean, I'm impressed. It, it sounds really powerful. That it's and it sounds like it's really growing and spreading. Yeah, well, that's the work that we're doing, um, and I, you know, have the privilege of doing this with two different hats on. So. On the other side, um, in my own worker co-op, which um, is just about seven years old, I think we're hitting our seventh birthday next month. So AORTA stands for the Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance, which is kind of a mouthful, but um, yes, it is down to, to the little acronym AORTA, um, which is important. It's, it's helpful because it's kind of a metaphor for for the heart being at the core of the work that we're doing um, and, and also this idea of really like circulating um, skills and, um, and trust and strength. Um, so we are, we exist as a capacity building organization. So we support groups. We want, we want groups who are working for uh, social justice and a solidarity economy to be better and more effective at what they do. So we support that work as uh, consultants organizational consultants. We do strategic planning and that kind of thing. We also are facilitators um, of meetings, retreats, um, conflict resolution, any of that stuff. And then we do education. So sometimes we are doing a kind of meta process where we're teaching people how to do the consulting and facilitation and leadership development that we've done. But sometimes we just get right to the point of of helping people understand and situate um, issues of sexism or racism inside of their workplaces or their impact in the community of being in right relationship um, to the communities that they want to serve and not doing it in a way that's um, patronizing or condescending or that's mimicking the, a colonial relationship. Um, and so we really just want to eventually put ourselves out of a job and, and eventually be in a world where there is no need for something like Aorta because everyone in communities has the skills that they need. Um, to do these works, to the, the, this kind of work, to cooperate, to have leadership skills. Um, and our approach in doing that is to bring an intersectional idea of how systems of oppression um, kind of collude and prop one another up in all different things. So sometimes that's institutional, um, and sometimes that's at the everyday level and just in terms of the organizational policies. So even if we're brought in to do a training on financial literacy, we have an understanding that often women and people of color um, and people um, 
from a, uh, a lower or working class background often don't have the mentorship, the skills, the relationships, the encouragement that um, cisgendered men have, um, that people with class privilege have, that white people have um, going into it. So even if most of what we're talking about is a balance sheet, uh, we're bringing in this social dimension to the work that we're doing. You know, Chris has joined us by phone, and I, I definitely want to give her a chance to get in and, and become the host of the show. But I've got one question based on what you've said already that I'd like to uh, ask you um, that, well, and a comment that I feel so much alignment between what the innerrevolution.org is doing and what you are doing with Aorta and probably the Cooperative Federation as well. But the principles of oneness, accountability, and mutual support, I can really hear in everything that you're talking about, uh, in all of the interventions and supports that you're making, you know, you're talking about the oneness, that we've got to integrate the males and the females and the, you know, the less privileged and, you know, all of us, we are really one and we've got to be supportive. Well, okay, so we're one and that's the whole purpose of cooperative, right? And then the accountability, you know, is that these companies are accountable for how we are conducting business in the world. We're accountable to each other. We're accountable to our employees. We're accountable to the communities. And then you're talking about how Aorta offers mutual support, you know, and really trains people how to do what is for the highest good of all, including all of these individuals. And so... I just wanted to say that, that I feel so much resonance with what you're saying and what we're doing. And that, and the other thing is that you're taking on the whole, you know, you're not just saying, well, we're going to fight for, um, you know, higher pay. You know, it's not that you're, you're taking, you're taking on the whole community, you know, the whole environment. And I think that is so commendable, even though it's hard as hell, it's what we have to do. We have to take on the whole thing. Right. Well, but it's also an iterative process, right? So it's not, I don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, world, <laughs> I'm going to... No, be- no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although, although sometimes when I'm sitting behind my computer and looking at my inbox, that is what it feels like a little bit. Exactly. Um, but, but it is really iterative. I mean, I think, I think if there's something that I want... Um, us to, to leave this conversation with, um, it's this idea that at a certain point, it's not that deep, that, that there's this utter simplicity to how you begin um, and how you begin again and how you return to the work. Um, whether you're somebody who's called to that work, whether that work is thrown in your face and you're pulled to it uh, for other reasons or compelled for economic um, or social other or other or even spiritual reasons, um, that there is a simplicity to it, that 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 complexity, um, uh, some of the work that I'm reading right now is really steeped in this um, this concept of emergence and emergent mm-hmm. strategy, this idea that that um, that actually we achieve complexity not by setting out to engage with you know the all of the you know multiplicities and the scale of the entire world, um, but that we engage at the level of uh, very simple interactions, critical connections and relationships, and that by doing that, um, it begins to ripple, and you end up being able to engage in in complex networks and uh, repercussions for positive acts and policy changes or cultural shifts. 
Um, I, I, I you can't do that agree. by waking up and, and saying, hey, Hollywood is uh, is has a culture of white supremacy, patriarchy and racism and uh, exactly. transphobia. And and so uh, let's just go on a Twitter rant about it. it. It really is, you know, thinking about what, first of all, uh, beginning with yourself and thinking about how in your own life uh, have you have we internalized some of that toxic culture um, and using that as a laboratory, you know, as a petri dish to start examining um, ourselves and, and our own path for shifting, because you know we're all we've all imbibed this sort of toxic culture. Um, Absolutely, that's based on our racial background, our class background, whatever. Um, and so we all have our own moment of at least having empathy and, and beginning with empathy rather than outrage of saying, well, I was once on the wrong side of being ableist um, and I'm still on the wrong side in so many ways. And I'm still on a journey to learning about that as somebody who's predominantly able-bodied and has walked around, um, literally walked um, for most of my life as an able-bodied person. So how can I use that um, to, to be humble and understand that, you know, as a person of color, as someone from an immigrant family, um, as a queer person, um, that to use that as a point of, of um, empathy to engage with people who might be um, heterosexual, who might be um, native born in this country, um, or who might have been in this country for multiple generations, or who might be coming from a higher class background, or who might um, enjoy um, the sort of benefits of, of a white identity and, and everything that's afforded to them and their families as, as a result of that. That, that to me, doesn't incite um, alienation or rage, but rather um, some empathy of, you know, I have a commonality. I understand what it's like um, to come from a place of relative privilege as being somebody who has an American passport um, or who is a native English speaker, um, and who is able-bodied or who is cisgendered um, and to use that as a place of, um, of connection and to, to organize. Well, again, I want to just comment that I, I like what you're saying about the simple concepts. We've got to have some simple principles of connectivity and that's what everything else depends on. Chris, do you have a question or comment? I want to see if we can integrate you. Yes, thank you. Hi, Esteban. Hi. Hi. Um, I just want to take a piece of what you just were discussing, Esteban, because it's really important. You talked about how it starts with something that's like just in our immediate perimeter, something that we can do or change, and we can start with ourselves and look at our own attitudes. Mm. And Esteban and I had a really interesting conversation this morning. Um, I was sharing about someone who's close to me who's by. And I made an observation, um, and I'm not bi, and um, Esteban really beautifully helped me understand very quickly that just looking at um, my perspective as being someone who's liberal, lives in Southern California, doesn't perceive like there's a bit, you know, a big threat, right? Because here I'm in Southern California, and there's, you know, it's a relatively easygoing culture, and Esteban was sharing with me what it's like to, you know, to be in a world where, for the most part, you don't see people who are the same sex, you know, being openly affectionate in public. And um, there still is a lot of discomfort for many people um, around that. And that's just one small example, not small in the context of someone who feels pain around it, but it's just one small example of how here I am thinking that I have this 
broad perspective, but again, I really don't understand what it's like to walk in someone's shoes. Mm. So um, it's a reminder to me, and this is part of the inner revolution, to really refrain from having opinions and judgments. You know, there certainly are things that bug me and that that, um, I wish were different in the world, but it reminds me to just really stop and uh, be very careful before I start putting forth opinions and judgments. And um, I actually, when I was speaking to Esteban this morning, I ended the call literally in tears because I realized, God, you know, I try so hard not to be in that place, you know, not to be in that place where I'm cavalier or I'm insensitive. And, and yet, unwittingly, there I was. And Esteban shared with me something that's very interesting that shaped um, shaped Esteban's life, and that was reading a lot of science fiction when you were younger. And Esteban, I'm so moved by your sensibility that it's possible for the world to change and it's possible for people to change. Like, mm. you, don't, you don't walk into life every day going, things are stuck, you know, I've got to gun people down in the street to make things happen, right? You walk into the world going, things can change, people. They can change. We just have to you know, push up our sleeves and do something. So oh, I, I would maybe take talk you about that a little bit. That. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I mean, I think things must change and I also think things will change. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's inevitable that they will change um, in all the ways or that we will shape, the, that, that the future will sort of automatically unfold in, in the way that we want it to, that it will all be this like beautiful utopia without energy and organizing. Um, I had a, mo- had a moment on the flip side of this where I-, I felt like I was kind of schooled by a mentor of mine. We were speaking on a panel um, in Detroit just over a year ago, um, and that, that question kind of came before us about organizing in the future. And, and you'll recall, uh, spring of 2016, we were um, at the height of the uh, presidential election. Um, the-, the campaign was, was in-, in full heat. And... One thing that um, that we were th- that we were sort of debating on this panel, and this is somebody who is uh, my senior by many many decades, <laughs> so he's very much a mentor of mine. Um, and he he had challenged me and said, "Well, you know, yes, there will be crisis, whether that's climate or other. There will be collapse, economic or otherwise. Um, and let's not presume that 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 is going to necessarily fall in our favor. So the future will be different than now." Change is inevitable. Crisis is going to happen. These were all things that we agreed on. But he was saying, and if it happens tomorrow, it is probable people are not going to break for the left. It is not going to be a progressive, glorious, trusting, um, liberal change that people will resort to fear. Um, And he was saying, you know, if if that moment happened tomorrow, um, they're more likely to break right and go into the, the Trump camp. And, and of course, the, the prescience of that was, um, is not lost on me now. It's not lost on you now, no. <laughs> um, but even at the time it resonated, and I was like, oh my gosh, he is, he's so right. You know, and that this is why I do the work that I do, because the question isn't how do you convince somebody of your opinion um, so, that, so that everyone breaks now. It's what are we doing now to create the conditions so that when the collapse or the crises or... Um, whatever challenges come uh, at a larger scale that 
our movements and our communities become the irresistible choice, right? Yeah. That that people are, that we have systems in place, that we're taking care of people, um, and that when faced with an option, whether that's an election at the ballot box um, or other types of choices that people could make, um, you know, the choice to open a business, that they could choose to do that in community and in a cooperative way rather than as a sole proprietorship or as an investment-driven, profit-driven um, system, right? So right now, everything is in place to make the latter more desirable, that people want to go with the old traditional way that is extractive, exploitative, and unsustainable. Um, so what is the work that we're doing to make it easy, accessible, understandable, supportive, um, and ultimately irresistible to embrace these um, these things that historically have been called alternatives um, and that now we are insisting must become mainstream and many of them are becoming mainstream, that we're sort of done with the phase, the generation of our lives where we were experimenting with these ideas and they were we were tinkering with different alternatives. Now we're saying, yeah, we're done with the alternatives. We've proven that they work and that they're better. Um, and, and our work now is to make those more mainstream. Um, can so you, yes. Can- I'm sorry, can you talk a little bit about that, about um, how many, are there statistics that show that it is more effective? Uh, are there um, are there numbers to say that more people are turning toward cooperatives? I mean, I, I can't remember where I heard it recently that that a lot more companies, when they when the owners are ready to retire from the old model, mm-hmm. that a lot more people are wanting to sell their company to the employees and have it be a cooperative venture. Are you seeing that? And can you talk a little bit about that? We are seeing that. In fact, the fastest growth um, that we're seeing in the worker co-op sector is from retiring retiring business and business conversion. So that so owners um, who don't have a succession plan and whose children uh, in family businesses are not interested in running that same business um, are increasingly looking at that option of selling to the workers um, and essentially converting it into a worker, uh, worker-owned cooperative. So that's the, I mean, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth in the worker co-op sector overall. And within that growth, the fastest type of, um, of growth is happening um, both in terms of the, the the scale of the enterprises, right? So the larger businesses um, and the most numerous businesses, right? So most of the new worker co-ops every year um, over the last six or seven years have been through that process that you just described through through conversions. Um, and of course, we're seeing the with the what's sometimes been called the silver tsunami, right? So an entire eight, a t- entire generation of baby boomers um, who are business owners either through joint ventures or sole proprietorships or family businesses are retiring. There's um, between 150 and 300,000 businesses per year um, are closing. And rather than having them close entirely, we're seeing this as as a primary strategy for growing community um, owned or controlled or worker owned or controlled businesses. Um, so having some fraction of that massive, massive wave of uh, business succession uh, brought into the cooperative, um, the cooperative sector, and, and adopting our model. So yes, that that is absolutely something that we're seeing. Um, on, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, how how are you evaluating the success of that movement? I'm I'm sure that you know worker satisfaction is like exponentially improved. But what other measures are you using? Well, yes, um, I would add something, another dimension to that satisfaction, which is not just that there is job, there's there's a um, contentment with the quality of jobs, let alone the preservation of jobs, right? So there's quantity of jobs through this plan rather than it, a business close, closing up, um, especially in rural areas, right, um, where there's no right. one over that business once you close it and the whole community depends on it. Right. Um, so we're absolutely seeing that in places like um, in rural California or in islands in Maine or um, all parts of the Midwest, upstate New York. That's absolutely a, a very viable business succession model. Um, but that, that, that there's this other dimension, which is the, um, the quality of life and the asset building that comes with not just being a contented worker, but becoming a worker owner. So we, we call our members, right, they're worker hyphen owners. These are people who simultaneously own right. the business and work there, um, and they are sort of neither employer or employee, but kind of both at the same time, and also mutually, right, that they are one another's bosses. So they're not bossless, um, but that, that we've distributed the responsibilities of, of being a boss, and it is, it's, it's, you know, or being an owner, um, or a shareholder. And so these are people who are all of those things. And so suddenly overnight, they're incredibly um, engaged, inspired. I mean, their civic engagement just out in the community it skyrockets because suddenly they're exposed to this concept of long-range planning and thinking because they're doing that work. Um, their, their, their financial literacy uh, is uh, is improved because they're you know looking over budgets and spreadsheets and they're uh, approving their annual budgets. They're involved in management in these businesses, um, and so it's yeah, it's much more than just saying, hey, guess what? I no longer have the boot of an employer um, on my neck, or even for in the cases of these small businesses um, uh, in the retirement thing where. They might have had wonderful relationship with their employer, but now there's a, an extra pride that they have, um, and we're able to to tap into and engage their entrepreneurial spirit and, and creativity for the the vision of where does this business go um, in the best of times, and also what what do we want to see happen in the worst of times when when the business is facing a challenge and you know, traditional businesses are, they cut where it's easiest. You lay off employees um, or you right. cut And here they get to decide, okay, well, we don't want to lay anyone off. Um, what are the ways that we want to think creatively of how to get through this time? So in, in worker co-ops, often that's about taking an across-the-board pay cut. Right. Um, or maybe just reducing, um, simplifying what their their products, services, or inventory are, right? That, that you can say, instead of this elaborate menu, we're going to pare it down a little. It, we might have a simpler menu and maintain our uh, health benefits or maintain our payroll or maintain, you know, some of the other uh, perks that they offer one another as worker owners. Esteban, I also hear in there that there's a real shift in the idea of hierarchy, um, instead of there being, you know, workers who work for the boss or the senior execs, however you want to describe the hierarchical relationship, 
there's people who take co-ownership of really all aspects of the business. And as I understand, a lot of cooperatives elect um, like a leadership team, but that doesn't mean that people abdicate their engagement. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is important to situate this conversation in terms of scale, right? So you could have a business that is fairly small, like Aorta, which is about 10 or so people, right? So that's a small scale and we can all be pretty much equal uh, owners and members and, and we can each be part of different management committees, but there's no sort of sub team, you know, we didn't elect three people to run everything and the rest of us just go out and do trainings, right? Um, And so at that scale, that's fairly easy to implement. Some of the larger firms, um, it is very common and in fact advisable at a certain point um, to delegate that responsibility. Um, And uh, usually that's in a political process where you're electing people. Sometimes those are ex officio roles. So you could say, well, our you know, our bookkeeper is just automatically going to be somebody who's on this operations team because they're involved in the day in, day out financial planning. Um, and so that makes sense. Um, for example, in a taxi cooperative, you might do that, right? A worker co-op where many of the people are driving taxis. Some of them might sit on a management committee. And definitely you want your dispatcher or your bookkeeper, some of the people involved in you know, marketing um, to sit on, on that committee. So that is something that we see at some of the larger firms. Um, it depends on the size. I, I Prior to forming Aorta, um, I was uh, involved in a food co-op, which was actually a hybrid cooperative. It was always non-hierarchical. And so it was a consumer-owned, um, it still is, a <laughs> consumer-owned food co-op uh, in Philadelphia where I live. And we what what our members did was they um, basically hired workers and those workers formed a staff collective. Um, and when I first joined the staff, which was oh boy, uh, close to 15 years ago, um, we were about five people on staff and that, that we've since grown tremendously. There's more than 50 people uh, working at this food co-op now, but we've maintained the structure of being a collectivized um, staff. Now, when we shifted from being, you know, five seven, 10, 12 people to being 30, 40, 50 people, uh, we did make that shift, right? So I, I lived through that shift in, in structure of saying, well, we still have these values and yet we absolutely cannot do the level of planning, governance, uh, financial oversight, uh, rela- relating to our, our board of directors and all of that um, as a body of whatever, 30, 40, 50 people. So I, I was part of um, that initial management team. Um, there's all different kinds of ways that people structure it. Um, that was a hybrid co-op situation. But in worker co-ops, it's not uncommon to actually uh, appoint or hire somebody to be a general manager. And that means that they have a certain coordinating or oversight responsibility, but it doesn't mean that their power is that of a general manager in a traditional hierarchical organization, right? So that person is still subject to uh, some level of uh, peer evaluation or, or membership evaluation. They could absolutely be removed, censured, or fired by the rest of the group. Um, and in a lot of uh, worker co-ops, that person makes the same amount of money in terms of their salary as everyone else. That's not always true. Um, but the power dynamics are 
uh, fairly universal, right, where the ultimate power less, rests with um, the, the members. And so there's accountability that flows either laterally out to one's peers or in a sort of inverted pyramid situation where the full membership holds the ultimate power. And then each different um, level, whether that's a management team or a general manager or, or even an executive director in a lot of democratic workplaces, which nonprofits are beginning to embrace, um, are accountable to the larger base of uh, workers. And also, I, I understand that there's some cooperatives that offer um, ownership in the cooperative to the community. I've seen that with some local breweries. Yeah. Um, well, so some of them are offer membership just locally to the local community, um, and some actually offer membership to anyone, anywhere, <laughs> or anyone in the country. Um, our current board president, um, for the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops actually got started at a co-op called Black Star uh, Brewery Co-op, which is based in Austin, Texas. Um, she has since spun off her own bookkeeping co-op, so she's not at Black Star anymore. Um, but she that's where she started, and this is one of those, those um, co-ops exactly uh, in that fashion where they are, a de- we call it a democratic workplace, right? So all of the staff there uh, are members, they're, they're workers, they run the place, and there, is, there isn't any sort of um, oversight on the day-to-day of their workplace, right? So that's an entirely democratic workplace. And yet it is simultaneously also owned by the people who patronize that business, uh, who eat there, uh, who drink there, <laughs> Uh, but even people who are just interested and want to support the model. So you could buy a share living in Southern California. You could buy a share in this cooperative in Austin, Texas, and just support them. And you become a part owner um, of that brewery because it's a cooperative. And um, and anytime you're in Austin, Texas, you can actually absolutely go there as a member um, and you know enjoy the experience of of um, supporting that business and being there as a as a part you know, community owner. What One of the concepts that I want to leave our listeners with is the awareness that there are many ways that this democratic structure is taking form across the country. And sometimes when um, people who don't have a lot of information on this topic first hear it, they think that we're talking about something that's like it's socialist or somehow it's even going to become communist or just something that is the opposite of, of, you know, American free market enterprise. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about how this is very American and how it still supports um, the concept of the free market, right? Because everything you're describing isn't limiting access to the market or um, creating any kind of monopoly. And, we, you know, well, you can speak to it, but we still have the same concepts. We have investors, we have people who have to run the business, and what we've created, it sounds to me like, is a workforce that's more engaged, which is beautiful, because then we have people right. who are actually more accountable, but please talk to us about that aspect of it. Well, so, okay, first, I want to just holler at a further resource. So this is a short conversation that people can listen to, which is wonderful. But if you're interested in this concept of how do democratic workplaces and cooperatives fit into an American tradition, um, Gar Alperwitz, 
over at the Democracy Collaborative writes about this extensively. He's also uh, a professor, tenured professor, he's been there for many, many, many years um, at the University of Maryland, who writes on, he's a historian, and, and he writes about this specifically, situating it inside of an American tradition. So he's got a brand new book called Principles, uh, which my coworker just handed to me about an hour ago. Um, oh. And he has a book called The Next American Revolution. Uh, he has a book called What Then Must We Do? I mean, there's there's a bunch of books um, that are recent that, that are on this subject um, and worth looking at, looking at sort of Rust Belt cities and the tradition of employee ownership, homegrown in the United States. That is not my background, right? Because I come from an immigrant family, so I'm Jamaican. Um, and I was born in New York, so I, you know I was born as a citizen. I had that privilege, um, but my my parents, um, my cousins, my aunties, my uncles, my grandparents—they were all born in the um, Caribbean, um, in Jamaica, and um, and then, so I, you know I have this hybrid identity of having grown up in New York, um, and yet being kind of new to this country. <laughs> um, the the second thing I want to—well, that was the second thing. The third thing I want to say is that um, I, I actually would say that rather than being necessarily supportive of either a traditional um, American or a communist or a capitalist or any kind of particular economic agenda, cooperatives are actually agnostic in that we fit into, we could fit into any of the above. So co worker co-ops can function and thrive in a capitalist economy, in a social democratic, socialist democratic economy in a fully socialist economy and a communist economy that, um, that in fact, the whole premise is that they're just businesses. They're private businesses. So anywhere that can support a private business model can support a cooperative enterprise model. The difference is that rather than these being businesses that are investor owned and driven by the priorities of investment capital, these are businesses that are driven by the people who are benefiting from the, the co-op most directly through their involvement, either as consumers, uh, right? So if you shop at a food co-op um, or at REI as a cooperative um, or even at a brew, brew pub, right? So if you're someone who's consuming um, the services uh, or even at, at a credit union, right? You know, as, as a client of mm -hmm. the banking services. Or as a producer, right? So you're making your your you make milk, or you make cheese, or you sell fabric, or um, any kind of thing that you that you produce that you come together and sell those things through the cooperative structure. Um, or finally, and in my opinion, in a lot of ways, the most important and most powerful um, is by owning your labor in a worker cooperative, right? And so those are cooperatives where all the people who work in that enterprise um, are the primary stakeholders. That is your place of work. You own that craft, you own that product, um, and you have to go out there and hustle and market it just like anybody else. And so, yes, you're exactly right that in 2017, uh, with the, the economy that we have in this country, um, at least, and, and I know that many of our worker co-ops in this country are, do have international business and clients, and, and it's, um, that's, that's actually a, an asset. Um, that we're involved in value chains and fair trade products with coffee and bananas and tea and fabrics and website development and all kinds of things that, that can and do cross borders. Um, but that in 2017, it, it is, um, it, we are susceptible to market forces. That includes investment uh, in terms of getting 
whether that's startup capital to launch your business or to expand mm-hmm. it um, uh, by getting loans. It, there isn't some secret cabal who is funding worker co-ops where you get a zero <laughs> or 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 a low interest loan. I mean, you have to go to to banks. Um, there are uh, community financial development institutions um, and and cooperative loan funds and things like that. Those exist also, but by and large. We are part of the same economy, and even a lot of those institutions are part of the same economy. You got to go out there with a business plan and um, and secure a loan to, to to run or expand or open um, these businesses. And then you've got to go out in the market and compete. You have to have a high quality product. Um, usually, it's got to be um, on par with the the cost of services, um, so that you can be competitive. That even if many people are willing to pay a higher price for something that aligns with their values uh, and knowing that it's going to be sustainable, not exploitative and not extractive, that many people are willing to pay that even if it's only a slight difference um, in price. Um, but but often a lot of worker co-ops are doing things that are either at the same price or cheaper. Um, and so just being able to be out there um, doing that work is, is is part of the hustle of existing in the current economy. And of course, what we're trying to do is, is um, transition to a future economy, the next economy that's you know just and sustainable and that actually is aligned with our values and that not only is sustainable at what we're doing right now, but that is regenerative um, to, to our communities and to our environment that's already been depleted by the old economy, you know, business as usual um, practices. So I think what we're figuring out is a way to do all of those things um, in a multiplicity of industries, whether that's in the en- energy industry, um, you know, installing solar panels or providing biodiesel um, or in the um, food, catering, restaurant, um, coffee industries, construction, landscaping. Uh, we even have worker co-ops that do prototyping, um, engineering uh, businesses, right? So I just was visiting a, uh, one of our members out in Madison, Wisconsin. They're called Isthmus Engineering. And they're working on, I couldn't take photos of this, but I can tell you about it. They're working on one of the component parts of the new Tesla vehicle, right? So <laughs> this, is, uh, this is very high tech, uh, you know, electric car parts that a worker-owned cooperative is um, involved in the design um, and the execution of some of the components of that um, that vehicle. It's very you cool. Know, I, I, I have a question. Go I'm ahead, Chris, and then I have a question. Before we, yeah, one follow-up comment before we switch. Thank you. So it's good for us to just take in that the co-ops are not some um, panacea. You know, everyone still is living in the world where we have to compete and we have to survive. And um, we have eliminated the hierarchical relationship and we've eliminated hopefully some of the exploitative concerns and um, creating a more engaged workforce and, and people who are more engaged in the community. Mm. You know, in a, in, a, in a perfect world, if we're going back to science fiction and the world that the interrevolution.org would like to see, um, there would be also an equal distribution of wealth. And not necessarily in terms of that everyone has the same amount of money, but um, people people's needs are taken care of. So perhaps I am, for whatever reason, not able to work as many hours as another person, you know, that my needs could still be taken care of. And, right. um, 
that's that's another vision that we just want to leave the listeners with, and we also want to challenge ourselves to still be open to saying, you know, can we get there? You know, maybe we won't get there tomorrow or the next day, but can we get there eventually? Um, so, Helen, you wanted to ask a question, too? Well, I think it segues into what you're saying is that we can change the structure of uh, businesses. And I, I wonder if this also doesn't relate back to what Aorta does, their contribution is. So we've got these structures that we're changing, but like Chris said, we're still in this competitive model and we're still very much me-oriented, ego-oriented in our society. How do how does the federation and 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 aorta perhaps support people internally? Because you were saying this too, Esteban, that we have to change on the inside. We have to change ourselves. And so, how does that get addressed in the changing of the model? Right. Well, first of all, I don't. I I don't. I don't presume that we are. Um, relegated to being competitive. Um, I think we can be cooperative even in a market with a market orientation, right? So our cooperatives can find, and by the way, I think even the traditional, <laughs> the most successful traditional businesses uh, have become, tra- uh, become successful because they have been able to find cooperative solutions to um, to engaging in a market economy. And maybe ultimately for them, that's about, we figured out a cooperative solution to be more competitive against you, right? But that, that part of it is the idea of mergers even, right? That that's like finding ways of saying, hey, how do our two products or, or our two sets of expertise meld together to deliver a better value to potential um, clients on the other side? Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, cooperatives, they work together. Um, you, you can't be a cooperative unless you operate by the minimal seven cooperative pr- pr- uh, principles. There are more than those internationally and in different sectors and in different cooperatives around the world. Uh, but as a bare minimum, the thing we have in common is that we abide by the seven cooperative principles. Um, the sixth one is cooperation among cooperatives. It's not competition among cooperatives or competition in the world, um, it, despite the fact that we, you know, we know we have a market orientation because we're, we're, we're businesses. So we have been able to find ways of linking together, um, of creating value chains from co-op to co-op. Um, for example, we, you know, when we sell our T-shirts at our various conferences around the country, they have this tagline that says, think outside the boss. It's got our logo on it. It says, ask me about worker co-ops. They're super sexy. Everyone loves them. We source those from cooperatives, right? So we're not going for where is the cheapest place we can get this made, uh, which would be a competitive um, approach to doing that. We then, there's a worker co-op that's in Western North Carolina that is a textile mill that has um, predominantly immigrant workers in it that have reopened uh, a historic textile mill. And they're working in there. They, they're they a cut and sew uh, factory. They produce the t-shirts. Great. They then ship that up to New York where there's another worker co-op called Love Custom Prints that prints our logo on those t-shirts. 
uh, we then take those t-shirts and can sell them at cooperative conferences. Or they do the same thing with bags, shopping bags. Um, and then they take those shopping bags, they silk screen the logo of a food co-op. Those are then stocked in a food cooperative and sold um, to those clients, right? Which reduces their environmental impact that they can have a reusable bag. So all that entire approach of saying, well, what is the thing that is needed in the world, uh, which anyone who's doing a, a market study or feasibility study needs to grapple with those kinds of questions. Uh, you know, who needs this thing? What problem or need is it serving? Um, it's not just, I want to make bags, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. It's, you know, it needs to be something with, that there's a market for. Um, but what are cooperative ways that we can approach addressing that problem or, so, um, or potential product? Um, I also think that... Um, even groups who are in not just in vertical value chains, but are in the same industry. We have people who refer clients back and forth to each other all the time. Um, Aorta has dealt with this. Certainly people who do web uh, development or, or hosting uh, deal with this all the time where they say, look, right now my plate's full. <laughs> I've got more websites to develop than I can handle. Why don't you go to another cooperative that can do web development and I can recommend them that these are people who will deliver high services, high quality services. They'll give you the kind of care that we uh, bring to all of our clients. Um, and in a sense of mutuality, they're just going to come right back around and refer clients back our way when they have too many clients um, so that there's so much more that we can accomplish um, by bringing a cooperative mindset even to the market economy um, and, and by asserting that by building up what, you know, many activists and even scholars are calling a, a, a work sort of reclaiming the idea of a commonwealth, right, which, again, is, a, is an American um, idea and tradition that we have a commonwealth. I mean, I'm talking to you right now from the commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, we're not a state. We're a commonwealth. And um, that that we have a, a, a commons and these assets that are in our community um, and mutual interest and mutual aid that we're advocating for and that we're building, that we can um, get our needs met, not through a competitive, reductive, and exploitative mindset, um, but by coming together and serving one another's needs mutually. You know, I want to just make one more comment. We do have six minutes left, so I want to be mindful of the time, too, but um, it sounds like what you're saying in answer to my question is that the structure itself provides a feeling of safety and mutual support so that the, the structure itself helps people function at a higher level of consciousness about being mindful about the oneness concept and the, the mutual support and that we're accountable to each other and that I, I like that idea that that providing this safety structure in itself can help people act differently yes and you know i mean as a theory of change we're not trying to pretend like we're not in the current moment um the current economy the current society and the current place where we're located, right? So we, we do need to be absolutely realistic about that. But the best way for us to survive in all of those conditions is through mutual aid and by coming together and through cooperation. So um, even the idea of opening up a business, it's incredibly difficult to do that. And you were asking earlier, you know, what, you know are people adopting this model um, at a larger, at, at a faster pace? 
Um, and if so, is you know, is this is this in any way more successful? And the answer is that it absolutely is. That that startup businesses that are cooperative um, are four times likely to succeed compared to a sole proprietorship. Why? Because you're sharing the risk. If you're opening up wow. a company and it's just you doing it, and suddenly you don't have clients to get through the next winter because you're a roofer or something that that's it that's you you can't get through payroll or you don't have enough money um to get the inventory you need or to hire more people or to do the marketing that you need but if you're coming together with a whole group of people you've then just multiplied your network and your resources and if you're going through and if you're an established business and you're going through a difficult time especially if you're in those critical early years where businesses tend to fail you know, that, that first, the first five years, startup businesses tend to fail, um, that cooperative businesses tend to succeed um, in those early years. Why? Because it's you amazing. can as a group. You can guarantee um, that, that you can get through that time, you know, um, by relying on your, your networks mutually um, and drawing on whatever assets you have collectively as a group. You know, it's it's the it's the optimism of humanity, isn't it? Really, it's showing that if we provide people with uh, structures that do support the highest good of all, that people will move to them. You know, if you if but if they're not in place, we will resort to fear and com- and competition and aggression. But if we have a safe place to go, and this is kind of circling back around to the very beginning of the show when you said, you know, we believe we have to change and we believe that if we all, if we're creating these opportunities for people to move in this direction, they're going to see that they work and they're going to choose that. And, you know, this is, of course, the hope for humanity, isn't it? It absolutely is. And it's not just about you know, having a magical solution that you choose and everything is rosy and hunky-dory. It's that we're humans. And we, most of us were not raised in societies where we've learned to cooperate, to communicate, to respect one another, and to ride through conflict, right? So it's not that the solution is just jump in a co-op and everything will be fine. It's, you know, messy as your family. But it means that we as communities, as workers, as human beings, as members, clients, shoppers, parents, that we then get this extra skill, which is that we get to practice democracy in the everyday, in the workplace, um, and we bring those skills into our lives. So it it pushes us to be more mature and sophisticated, uh, which when I say it, it sounds crazy, but that's that's normal in science fiction. No, I I agree. Inspiration, right? It support, you know, it pushes us to function from our highest possible selves. You know, we've got two minutes left and I need to tell us about our next show and and then we'll come back to you. Do we have a Granny Rocks within? Let's talk to Beth Green, founder of Granny Rocks Music. Do we have creative capacities we haven't tapped into? Maybe. Granny Rocks is the new musical venture of Beth Green, former host of Interrevolutionary Radio and already a well-known commentator, author, counselor, and teacher. Granny is an inspiration. A chronically ill, 72-year-old semi-invalid, Beth is launching a new career as a singer-songwriter, composer-arranger, and it's working. Her music is fresh, exciting, beautiful, touching, outside the box, and we love it. Beth's music career 
was blocked by illness at the age of 15, but she's coming back strong at the age of 72. How is she doing it? How is Granny using technology to compensate for her lack of physical capacities? How does she face the challenges and keep going? What can we take away for our own lives and creativity? Tune in, find out, and sample some of the delicious Granny Rocks music we'll be sharing on air. We'll also learn about a retreat on living life creatively that Beth will soon be leading in person and online. And I'm really excited about that show. But back to you, Esteban and Chris. Is there anything you'd like to say in closing? Well, Esteban, leave us with leave us with some words of inspiration because I know this morning when I spoke to you, I just I felt hopeful again. We've got about thirty seconds. You're on the spot. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so, uh, one of the things I want to holler, holler at is um, a friend of mine named Adrienne Marie Brown. She's an organizer and thought leader. Uh, she just has a new book called Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Shaping Worlds. Um, and in it, I just encountered this sort of poem um, called A Complex Movement. And I'll leave you with that. Um <clears throat> It's in the introduction of her book. Um, So it says this. Over and over again, it becomes known. The peace we seek is seeking us. The joy of full bud awaiting our attention. Justice in our hands, longing to be practiced. The whole world learning from within. This thrilling moat in the universe. Laboratory, labyrinth, internalized demands. You are the one you are waiting for. Externalized love. Bind us together into a greater self, a complex movement, a generative abundance, an embodied evolution. Learn to be here. Critique is a seductress. Her door is always open. So what if you get some? We are going further, past reform, to wonder. This requires comprehension that cannot fit in words. Out beyond our children, beyond the end of time, there is a ceaseless cycle, a fractal of sublime, and we come to create it. To soil our hands and faces, loving, loving, and loving ourselves and all our places. So thank you so much for having me Aww. here. Well, thank you so much so for coming, beautiful, Esteban. Esteban. Yeah, thank you. That was so beautiful. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.